Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 114, recorded on April 21st, 2021. The Cloud Pod looks forward to rewriting Terraform code again. Welcome, Ryan, Jonathan, and Peter. How's it going? Going well. Good. Hi, Justin. Hanging in there. Yeah, it's a you know it's a Wednesday. It feels like a Friday, but it's sadly not Friday. That's all I, I know about it uh, for this week. But uh, you know, it's been a good week, uh, you know, for other reasons, but uh, just long. So we'll uh, get into some cool news as always here. So first up, uh, not cool news, or well, if it had happened, it'd be really bad news for all of us. Yeah. Uh, the FBI has apparently arrested a man in early April for plotting to bomb an AWS data center in Ashburn, Virginia. Uh, Seth Aaron Penley, 28 years old, was charged after he attempted to buy C4 explosives from an undercover FBI employee. The FBI was made aware of it after he posted his plot on the My Militia website, a forum used by militia members and supporters to organize and communicate. Uh, Penley hoped that a successful attack could kill about 70% of the internet, and he posted on the forum, the main objective is to F up the Amazon servers. There's 24 buildings and all this data runs through it in America. Three of them are right there next to each other, and those 24 run 70% of the internet, and the government, especially the higher-up CIA, FBI, especially special uh, S, and they have like eight billion dollars a year contract with Amazon to run through the service. So we f it up, and it's going to piss off the oligarchy. Uh, if found guilty, he could face up to twenty years in prison. And Amazon has a statement saying, "We'd like to thank the FBI for their work in this investigation, and we take the safety and security of our staff and customer data incredibly seriously, and constantly review various vectors for any potential threats." So there you go. As, as a non Native American, I would point out that seventy percent of the internet is yeah. <laughs> quite a oh, stretch, yes, for sure. Just given the entire entire rest of the world, but uh, but yeah, it would, I'm sure it would have had an impact. Yeah, <laughs> it would have caused a crappy day for a lot of companies, for sure. I mean, every time US East One goes down now, it, you know, it's a crappy day in general. So <laughs> it's uh, you know, it definitely would have impacted a lot of large major sites, and and Heroku would have been down, of course, because they're always down when the US East One goes down. I just always wonder why they want to close down these websites where people choose to make their plans public so that they can be thwarted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not good. Free con- free CDN. You should have a free CDN for those sites. Yeah. Like, as long as the F- FBI gets to monitor them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, posting a plan publicly and and then offering to buy something from somebody who read the public post is probably a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Not the smartest thing to do. Well, apparently, you know, if you go into the article a bit deeper, it uh, it says, you know, the, the FBI was tipped off by somebody else from the militia website who probably was watching it and then referred uh, him to the FBI agent to buy the C4, uh, which was uh, quite interesting. So, you know, that would have been a pretty big C4 instance, though. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. That would have been a terrible, terrible situation uh, and not great. But uh, moving on to better news and, and much more exciting things. So we talked about uh, HashiCorp uh, after their big conference last year. They announced Boundary. Uh, Boundary, of course, is their zero act trust um, product to basically provide access to your servers using a zero trust model similar to the Google Beyond Corp. Uh, and so we told you we would keep an eye on it, and they have released the point zero two or sorry, point two release, uh, which now provides OIDC support with Azure AD, Okta, and anyone else that supports OIDC supported, as well as a new Boundary desktop uh, application for macOS to make sure all of that connectivity happens easily and simply with the Windows app coming very, very soon. Uh, and as they've been developing, this is one of the big first times they think that you'll actually be trying to test this, because you know, who wants to authenticate with something that doesn't have OIDC integration or, or any type of AD integration? Uh, they did want to tell you all the things they've done since they released point one. Uh, 
that includes worker tags and filtering. Uh, they've given you a boundary upgrade and database migration process that's seamless and, and fail-safe. Uh, they've given you new resource filtering and listing improvements. They've improved their Kubernetes access, so you can leverage boundary on Kubernetes, and boundary can manage access to your Kubernetes API and kube services, as well as the new boundary reference architectures for Kubernetes, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, and Docker, plus a ton of bug fixes and minor details. Check out the release notes for all the details. Uh, but now at the point two release, I definitely say you could probably give a good test run of this bad boy and see if it's uh, lives up to the hype. Yeah, definitely POCable. Yeah, I know I didn't get very far last time. I tried because I do. I do feel that this is going to be the future of how we connect. Like you know, if not Boundary, something very much like Boundary and and, and Beyond Corp. Uh, you know, funneling everyone through a single network path is just the old way, and I just don't think it's sustainable. So I'm, hey, I'm excited for this. I just like it because it doesn't use XML. <laughs> Sweet. Use the uh... yeah. I keep thinking about like sure, starting from scratch. You know, greenfield company application. This is a great model, and even when the product like this is mature, you know, what does the migration path look like for a mature enterprise? Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Samuel's somewhat clunky. It was a, it was a good idea, but it, it didn't. I don't think it went down the right path. It's too complex, and the you know, those XML documents that describe the ID providers and service providers they're, they're just so unmaintainable. It's it's good to see a, a modern um, protocol taking its place and much more API friendly as well. Yeah. All of my hatred for uh, SAML came from Shibboleth, uh, which was you know the, one of the more draconian implementations of SAML because it was written by education companies, you know, education uh, universities that followed the RFC spec to the letter. <laughs> and so the every little you know rough edge, sharp edge of SAML, uh, you would have to deal with uh, in their shipboard implementation, which was always terrible. And so then, you know, other people came out with better implementations and OpenID and all the kind of other things that came out after that uh, to simplify it down quite a bit and kind of get rid of the rough edges or the things that just were extraneous and no, not necessarily, but never failed. I had to integrate Shibboleth for some terrible reason, and then I'd have to suffer through all of that SAML hate again. Yeah, I suffered through Shibboleth a lot, and I think it's it's an example of why you know open source isn't always. Uh, a good thing, especially when when the person who's maintaining the project is is kind of an asshole. <laughs> yes, very true. So yeah, a very yeah, opinionated I, asshole. Not that. <laughs> yes, that's the best kind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depending yeah, on what you, depending on what side of the opinion you're on, it could be. Yeah. Well, the other announcement from HashiCorp this week uh, is Terraform 0.15 is now hit general availability, which of course breaks all of your previous releases because <laughs> this is still a deprecating change at this point. But they do want to let you know this is the beginning of the pre-release period leading up to the eventual release of Terraform 1.0. I'm going to hold my breath on that because I've heard these lies before. Uh, there are several new highlights uh, for things to know for Terraform 0.15. Uh, the first is they have now made remote state data source compatibility for, through uh, .12. Uh, so if you're using remote state data sources, you can now test those things without having to actually upgrade to .15 first, which is a nice change mm, of pace because you used yeah. to be kind of forced. As well, state file <laughs> format stability is now backported all the way to .14. Uh, and so they now say the state file format will be stable through the 1.0 release. Um, with this .15 release, which is quite great. 
Uh, there is now unified console support to improve the console experience across all supported platforms, bringing a consistent UTF-8 support into format and a move to virtual terminal sequences of MS Windows. So if you're going between the different platforms for some reason, uh, it now looks the same versus they were completely different on Windows and Linux, which was terrible. <laughs> uh, the provider-based sensitivity and sensitivity functions to handle your secrets a little bit better and make sure those don't get uh, displayed in the console and always be redacted if you've declared them as sensitive objects. New structured logging levels, which is always great for those who want to log their stuff as well as you can now log uh, independently of the CLI with TF log core and TF log provider levels uh, being specified in the configuration. And this also apparently marks the end of the several ongoing deprecation cycles, which, you know, so this should be the last time you apply .15 and it breaks all of your code and you get to rewrite all of your state files and all of your stuff. In theory, if there's a .16 and a .17, they're telling me that's not going to break anymore it will now be stable going into the 1.0 release. So again, if you believe them, then this is a really great release. <laughs> I just have I have some cynicism and uh, I, you know, it's been a long path to 1.0. Uh, they have updated all of the HashiCorp Learn tutorials uh, to be .15 compatible, so you can go test all those things and play with it and learn the new techniques and technologies. Yeah, it's like they're practicing for their 1.0 release. Sort of. I don't know. Like, with if they stop breaking it, like, how am I going to get like really in depth knowledge about how they manage state? Because there's nothing um, that's a better teacher than completely screwing your prod environment in the middle of the night. Now, <laughs> <laughs> the bad news is we had a 48 hour outage. The good news is we totally get the way that new Terraform state file works. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just happy for the console changes. If it means I can copy and paste logs out of Terraform Enterprise, for example, into into something else. And I actually have them readable because all those anti escape sequences and things are just <laughs> just a nightmare. UTF eight solve a lot of those problems for you. Yeah. Well, HashiCorp is uh, always giving us some good tools, so I you know the suffering and pain of Terraform has been worth it in the long run. It's just I like to complain about it every single time. That's how you know I love it. The more I complain about something, it's the more I actually like and enjoy using the tool. So how do you feel about Oracle? Then you really love Oracle, and Ryan? I have no opinions about Oracle. <laughs> It is true, though. I mean, you you hate breaking changes to the tools you use the most. It's true. Yeah. I haven't used Oracle in over a decade and just couldn't, you couldn't pay me to go back. And I don't really have any, any opinions about it at works anymore because I have no need. <laughs> I've been getting marketing emails from Oracle recently. I'm like, uh, it's got the unsubscribe link at the bottom. I'm thinking, how did you even get my address to begin with? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from somebody. Bought it. Or <laughs> I've, only, I've only had it for two weeks. That's all it takes. <laughs> You sign up for one form on one website that then sells that data to Oracle, and that Oracle has your name and number. Yeah, and their and their lawyers will be auditing you tomorrow, so that's fine. Checks in the mail. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to AWS news this week. Uh, you know, Amazon over the last I'd say year has been doing a ton of work to lower the price of your Redshift cluster with new instances like the new RA3 released at the end of 2019, as well as the different sizes of that. Uh, and all these improvements up to date have benefited the storage performance of Redshift, which is really where the bottleneck has been. Uh, but now they're saying they've outpaced the CPU performance with all the storage benefits, uh, which is problematic considering that data warehouses continue to grow in massive amounts of data per day and per month. Uh, this results in situations where the network and CPU bandwidth become the limiting factors for your Redshift scaling. And so at reInvent, uh, they quietly released the preview of Aqua, and I very loudly complained because it was my prediction, uh, and I didn't get a point for it, so I was very grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but now Aqua, uh, which is not related to the Barbie girl or the band, 
uh, is now generally available and available to all RA3.4XL and RA3.16XL nodes. Uh, Aquid builds on the storage caching layer of uh, in S3, AWS Nitro, and a custom FPGA to push the computational needs to handle reduction and aggregation of data closer to the data. This, of course, reduces the network traffic, offloads work from the CPU, and allows Aqua to improve the performance of these queries by up to 10 times at no extra cost and without any code changes. And Aqua also makes use of the fastest, highest bandwidth connections to S3 that are available to you today. And this is basically decoupling the data from the compute in a large scale-out model, which is a great pattern if you've ever done scaling of anything of size. A few things to know if you're going to take advantage of this. Uh, the cluster must be on 1.0.24421 or later. Uh, currently, most optimized, uh, mostly optimizes relevant queries over large scans and aggregates of like and similar to predicates. Uh, but they do expect to support additional predicate query types in the future. Uh, all data is encrypted using your keys. After it performs filtering or aggregation operations, Aqua compresses the results, re-encrypts it, and returns it back to Redshift. And it's available in North Virginia, Oregon, Ohio, Ireland, and Tokyo, with Frankfurt, Sydney, and Singapore on the horizon for the first half of 2021. A friend of the show did message me on Slack and said they were trying to get into this. Uh, they're not actually able to get it enabled on their cluster due to some S3 parameter that they can't change, and so there's a support case they have up with AWS. So you may have some some teething pains uh, if you're trying to get this working right away, uh, but hopefully Amazon will get that solved in the next couple of days, uh, and you can be able to use Aqua as expected. Still not fully serverless, though. I wonder if it, I wonder if Aqua is a step towards serverlessness. It's weird how yeah. it's tied to those specific instance types, but that may that may be more a function of the Nitro involvement in the in the way the integration works than, than the actual compute happening on the node. I mean, if they're decoupling compute from storage, then I, I don't think the compute's still happening on those nodes if that's where the constraint was, right? I, I suspect it's the data access layer, to because the Nitro is giving them... I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the other nodes don't use Nitro, first of all. I think the these RA3s do, so you get the Nitro part of it. And the other part of it is those fast, that fast 10 gigabit uh, network speed to the S3 infrastructure is only available on certain class of instances. Um, which is most likely in these RA3s as well, which is probably mm. why. That's true. I thought there were more Nitro instance types than just those. The I mean, there are, but 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 not for Redshift. That's for, the... for for Redshift, ah, maybe not. Okay. Yeah. yeah, there's a ton more yeah, Nitro types. This just Redshift is very particular yeah. in its instance types. Same thing with machine learning. There's special ins ML instance types that you have to use as well um, in those use cases. Yeah, I still look forward to a fully serverless type implementation, though. Obviously, you 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 would want some kind of caching for performance. You just don't need to pick the instances, basically. You don't want to yeah. worry about the instances. I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have to pick the instances. I, would, I, would, I want that to scale magically on, on my behalf when I need to run the queries. Yeah. Or, or I pay for, pay for caching and, you know, for, for performance. Yeah. Yeah. You want that dynamo magic of DAX and all that stuff where I don't worry about it. Yeah. I want everything. I want faster, cheaper. And I want to do, do it automatically for you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All yep. right. Well, if you uh, are using the Amazon managed service for Grafana, uh, this now supports the ability to do Grafana enterprise upgrades. Uh, now supports the new Grafana version 7.5, which was just released this week, which, wow, that's quick, Amazon. That partnership is doing you good already. As well as now supports open distro for Elasticsearch, which is now open search as it's been rebranded, as well as AWS billing reports all available to you to suck into Grafana. Of course, this is the AMG service or Amazon managed Grafana. Uh, and this is a partnership with uh, Grafana themselves as well. So they actually provide the enterprise capabilities with support and enablement and training, as well as access to all the plugins that you may want, like ServiceNow, Splunk, New Relic, um, et cetera. Uh, the, 
new Grafana 7 to 5 has quite a few new features, including support for larger Prometheus queries via post method, a new Amazon CloudWatch plugin enhancements, and AWS X-ray service map visualization and more. Uh, you can check out that blog post on the Grafana website, which has all the really cool screenshots of all the things you can now do with Loki and Grafana and all the things uh, that are there. Uh, previously, we talked about AMG was free for evaluation uh, before April 15, 2021, and now beginning on April 16th, uh, customers using AMG will receive a 90-day free trial for five users per account, uh, which is great. Again, this is a uh, partnership with Grafana, uh, and then Grafana t- yesterday also announced that they're changing their licensing from the Apache License 2.0 to the Afero General Public License, or AGPL v3, which is the copyleft uh, open source license. It is OSI approved, uh, and they are very proud of their move. They have a blog post about that as well. The plugins, agents, and libraries will, of course, remain uh, APL 2.0. And initially, I thought this might be you know them being mad at Amazon, but I'm like, wait, you're, they're a partner, though. How can you be mad at Amazon? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they actually do talk about uh, that in their FAC. Uh, and the question was asked, so what about cloud providers like AWS? How does this change affect the Amazon managed services for Grafana or AMG? And their response to that is, AWS is a strategic partner, and given the commercial relationship AWS has with us for AMG, AWS and their AMG customers are not impacted by this change. And we hope that other uh, infrastructure service providers follow AWS's lead in working with open source software companies in similarly sustainable ways, uh, which was an interesting uh, answer, I thought. Yeah, and this is the example of, okay, let's not go to war with Amazon. Let's uh, find a way where we could both uh, be successful. So we saw the go to war method with a couple of the other uh, big distros, and now we'll see what happens with this one, see if they're actually able to successfully make money and grow their business and accelerate their development of their products because of it. That said, it's clearly not uh, like just trying to keep their head down in this in the battle either, because they're very clear in the in the press release that they b- believe that this is you know how you follow open source, and they have no intention of redefining what that means. And, and if you know, like, how do you call yourself an open source company if you're not using a license that's accepted by the OSI? Like, they're they're very clear through that that statement. That yeah, they actually called out the SSPL for not being approved by mm-hmm. the OSI. Yeah, uh, yeah. why they didn't consider it. I think it's very fair. It's very much enforces the spirit of the open source community by requiring feature enhancements or optimizations to be pushed back into the into the code base. I guess if if they want it at least. I mean they don't have to accept those things. But it, it is quite onerous though. I mean if, if you run any service um, publicly where you know a client talks to you, talks to a, an instance of Grafana which you've modified, then you have to provide that source to those users. I don't know. I'm not sh- I'm not sure that that's um, that's gonna work for some people, but it, it make it makes intellectual property management kind of difficult especially for these the older companies that aren't so in tune with the open source communities i've worked for plenty of people who just wouldn't have open source programs because they saw it as a liability yeah i don't suspect that this is the end of the license shuffle right i think that mm-hmm. i think there though there'll be different changes in adoption and i think there'll be retreats and there'll be advances you know i, I really do see this as sort of something that's going to have to shake down across the whole industry so but, you know, I like moves like this that are a good compromise in the middle. Um, yeah. I think it's the same license that Mongo is actually underneath uh, for the Mongo open source portions is, I think, of the same AGPL. So it's, it's not unheard of to be used in the space, even for companies that have been having kind of this war with Amazon and other cloud providers. Um, you know, and I think the key thing is that the improvements that Amazon makes to this or to the Google makes to these things, that, that needs to go back to the source. Like, that, that should be stuff that gets included. I think that's a fair compromise. Yep. Yeah. Levels the competitive playing field.
Yeah, to some degree, but but we know from our experience with Elasticsearch that a lot of the the investment in engineering time has gone into the management of those things and the tooling around around that. So I, I can see why it, it may be difficult to to make the changes that you need and still provide those back without exposing some kind of insights into the way you run your business or or get, sort of giving away some important information. I don't know. I I, I think it's a good choice. It's definitely better than SSPL. And it's it's yep. we'll see how it goes. We'll see. Time will tell with all these uh, these battles. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance. Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well... You know, Amazon had a very short little press release uh, that I looked at today, and I read through this, and I actually think this is really cool. Uh, so this is the Amazon RDS for Postgres now integrates with AWS Lambda. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, Postgres probably already integrates with Lambda through APIs, and you, know, you do a backup, you can fire a Lambda function. But this is actually integration at the store procedure or the user-defined function level inside of RDS Postgres. Uh, so basically, you can then declare that you know when this store procedure basically fires a fired function, that you want to kick off a Lambda function. So you could use this thing for things like sending email out to a customer uh, when they update their email address. And so that could be a trigger operation or a user-defined function. Uh, basically, then kicks off a Lambda. You hand the data to Lambda. Lambda does its, its processing of it and then sends that right out. Uh, via that without having to take the CPU of your database or any of the other methods that you probably would have done with procedures in the past, uh, which is pretty great. Uh, this is available to you asynchronously and asynchronously. So if you care about this job getting finished uh, before you commit the data uh, or convert back to the end user, you can do that, as well as if you don't care if it completes uh, at the same time, you can do asynchronously, which is pretty great. So I'm kind of excited to see what this might lead to in the future because I think there's some really cool opportunities with this. I definitely already have a very hacky use case that I can't wait to use this on. You know, like this is this is one of those things that it's like I can see just like sort of procedures naturally are like you can hang yourself, uh, especially if you make this synchronous. But I can't wait. This is this solves a major <laughs> problem, you know, um, and, you know, typically you'd have to engineer a lot of infrastructure around solving the exact same thing. This is great. Yeah, so procedures have always bothered me in in a way because I feel like it's engineering, um, stealing the resources of like a database team or the database server. And it's very unpredictable if a product change suddenly adds an extra load to a database server without proper communication around that. It, it can lead to problems, and I, I know it's led to problems in the past. On the other hand, store procedures are a very very optimal way of running complex queries very fast because they're pre-compiled and you don't need to ship huge documents and huge you know huge complex queries and sets of queries over the network every single time so this is i i actually think this is a really amazing feature to offload the compute that that effectively what store procedures would otherwise be running locally on them on rds it's neat wouldn't you still have to ship the data to the lambda function though well you do have to ship the data to the lambda function but but if you think about i mean the the code which which was running 
your which is processing your data doesn't have to be shipped anywhere. And if you have a thousand clients all running or all shipping those queries around, that's that's probably more data than right. the actual data being shipped around for the queries themselves. Yeah, and it just feels like all of a sudden you've taken the lid off of the maximum compute of your RDS instance, which that that's always something that's a pain in the butt is to you know you can't scale vertically uh, those resources, yeah. and now you kind of yeah you make compute able to scale dynamically and horizontally. So many things. I mean, now you could reach out and you could you could query an ML model based on some data that got dropped into the database. You could you could reach out and trigger a step function to start doing something. I mean, this, the the possibilities are endless. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, I'm seeing all the rope available. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ourselves with. oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I am going to break something really bad yeah. in this feature, and I can't wait. Yeah. Just think how much money you could spend on this. <laughs> Well, I mean, the other way you like to burn money in the Amazon cloud is, of course, machine learning, because machine learning is the best way to burn money very quickly uh, with all those very, very expensive GPU instances. Uh, and, of course, the way you do that is with SageMaker. And so SageMaker, which launched 2017, uh, which, you know, to me kind of feels like yesterday uh, or 100 years ago, depending on the moment I think about it. Uh, COVID's been weird to time. Uh, but, you know, so today Amazon is actually going to give you a price cut. Uh, it's been three years or four years almost at this price. Uh, and so now they're giving you two price cuts. Uh, the first one is that you can now uh, get a 15, per, basically a 14.2% discount uh, just on the compute resources for all regions where SageMaker is supported. This includes your T2s, your M5s, your C5s, your, all your Nitro-backed instances, basically, including your Inference 1 instances, uh, which is pretty great. And then the second part of this is they're giving you the ability to now commit these with um, savings plans. Ah. So you can actually use savings plan to now apply to your SageMaker use cases where you can get up to a 64% savings compared to the on-demand pricing, which is a pretty significant savings. Uh, and of course, it's not tied to regions or instance types, so this is much more flexible uh, than the prior reserved instances methods you might have been able to do. Uh, this also covers instance-based workloads for SageMaker, like notebook instances, studio instances, training instances, batch transformation instances, real-time endpoint, and SageMaker data wrangler instances, and SageMaker processing. So the entire SageMaker family is now covered by these cost reductions as well as the savings plan capabilities, which is a really great um, use case for those of you doing SageMaker at scale. I'm unclear as to whether this is just including SageMaker in the existing savings plan scheme or whether it's a separate savings plan for SageMaker resources only. So I, I think I can answer that. Because um, when you're – I was looking around and, and playing with it a little bit, and it is a separate sort of checkbox in the in the overall savings plan. So it's you would, you would specify it separately, the resources separately from the other, other compute. Yeah. Okay, that kind of kind of bothers me. I just, I just want the discount for committed usage, regardless of what I decide to, to spend my money on. So, well, so I mean, it's it's definitely part of your main savings plan. Other than it covers ML dot instance types, right? So, and right now you can buy a compute savings plan as either just like pure dollars per cent, you know, dollars per hour basis. You can do it tied to instance type uh, with the EC2 instance savings plans, and this is now the savings drinker savings plan, which gives you all those ML. So it, it is not. You know, just and part of the compute savings plan, which would be nice. Uh, but you know, it, it's kind of that next step, which was the EC2 instant savings plans. It's another type of EC2 instant saving plan, basically for you. Now, I mean, I guess it makes sense because there's the the upcharge for the mm-hmm. actual SageMaker service itself, and and they've got to recover their ROI from that. So I, it's I, also these things are you know, know all savings plans, whether it be you know RIs or um, or you know, the previous generation of them. You know, it's all based so that Amazon can more easily do capacity management right like it's it's the you know the carrot and the stick right they need to have that visibility into how they manage that and so how do they 
how do they work with their customers? Well, they get their customers to commit by giving them a discount. And so the same goes true for SageMaker. And I, I, I don't know, but I, I assume that you'd want to, to manage those two different workloads from an AWS perspective uh, separately. So that makes sense. I'd always say SageMaker is something which, you know, you, if you're building a product, you may run once or twice or a few times at the be it'd be kind of in the discovery phase to figure out which type of model you should use and you know the parameters for your ultimate implementation of the ML model. But to to have savings plan specifically for continued use of SageMaker means there are people who who continue to use SageMaker to find the best solutions. So I'm kind of curious to find out who those people are. You ever met a data science team? Well, I mean, I, th- I think that's a pretty common ML team process where you're basically taking, you know, the data sets against the real world, and you're basically then anytime you have fallout of that, and you have someone fix it manually, or you know, use uh, Amazon Turk or these things, you want to then feed that back into the model, and then reapply that against your your ML model. So that's what companies are doing here, and that's where you're. That's why they made sure they covered out the the SageMaker Data Wrangler, the SageMaker Processing, and the uh, real time endpoint stuff because that's where all that training is happening repetitively over and over again, and taking feedback from the system. Yeah, and there's no one more scattered as far as like planning and priority than the data science team. So this this isn't really for them. This is for the 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 team that has to actually foot the bill for whatever that data science team does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you've been running that saving page maker instance for six weeks at you know GPU level pricing? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. seventy six dollars an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my five hundred dollar community builder credits didn't go long no. in those instances. <laughs> uh, we're going on GCP. Uh, so we had an interview a couple weeks ago with Miles Ward, who's the CTO of SADA Systems. Jonathan and I for TCP Talks. So, so do check that out if you haven't listened to that yet. Uh, he talks about his time working at both Amazon and Google when he was a solutions architect, and then kind of what SADA is doing now in the Google Cloud space and consulting. Uh, and one of the things he mentioned in there was Colossus, uh, and Colossus is the storage system that underpins Google Cloud uh, and most of Google's most popular products, including YouTube, Drive, and Gmail, and it's the successor to GFS. So GFS was a Google file system uh, that they eventually kind of out outscaled uh, and need something better. So Colossus is the new version of that. Uh, and so you know, this blog post is actually nothing new about Colossus because you don't none of us use Colossus directly other than through you know another service. But um, we talk about a lot on the show about how important it is to understand how some of these cloud technologies work, especially in how they architect them, how they design them for failure. Um, and so it's always good to have these kind of technical deep dives so you get a better understanding of how things work. And so this is a deep dive of Colossus. It's made up of several different components, uh, including a client library, the Colossus control plane, the metadata database, the D file servers, and the custodians. Uh, and this basically walks you through how all that is done uh, to present to your VM a, a, basically a volume of data uh, to the instance. And so it walks you through all that. They also link to a YouTube video they presented at Google Cloud Next that goes into this a little bit more in depth in a video format if you don't want to read um, and or don't look at the architecture diagrams. But this is a really great uh, kind of brief uh, introduction to Colossus, which I think is really great. So I mentioned those uh, components. The client library handles how an app or service interacts with the service, handles things like software RAID, uh, retry logic, all of the things, and that's really what the applications at Google use to talk to Colossus. The uh, Colossus control plane is a set of curators uh, that clients talk to for control operations, such as file creation, and, it's ho- and is horizontally scalable. The metadata service is uh, based on Bigtable, and this is where the curators store file system metadata. 
Uh, and this original motivation for solving this issue with GFS was this particular issue, the metadata tables. Uh, and they're able to scale Bigtable to scale by over 100 times the largest GFS cluster that they've had uh, in the past. The defile servers, which are poorly named, fully admit, <laughs> the defile servers are just disk. Uh, these are network attached disks. <laughs> Uh, that basically uh, they are dumb, dumb disk arrays that basically they talk to, and then the custodians are the background storage managers that play a role in maintaining the durability and availability of the data, as well as for overall efficiency, handling tasks like disk space balancing and RAID reconstruction. So, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, definitely check check this out if you're in the Google ecosystem and you're curious about Colossus and how it works. This is a great intro. Yeah, Miles was talking in in our interview about how Colossus is really uh, what he sees is one of the the big advantages that GCP has over AWS because all the different products use the same underlying storage system. You know, if if you're building a machine learning tool and the data is already in an object store, the, uh, under, underlying all of that, the data is always in Colossus, and so you don't have to move the store, the, you know, the contents of that object from one data store to a different data store before you can do work on it. It's it's always right there. It's always very close to the compute. And and uh, Miles is talking about how that. Um, gave Google the edge. When it's like that, I mean, that's what Amazon is moving toward. If you look at, for instance, the uh, Redshift changes. Mm, somewhat. I mean, I think in the case of particularly what Miles was talking about is, you know, EBS and S3, you know, we see them as, you know, complementary products to each other. But internally, they compete with each other. So they're both, you know, they both buy disk. They both submit, you know, manage disk. They manage disk in their own ways. They do things in their own processes, uh, and to us, as the end user, it's their one service that we just leverage. And we take EBS backups and we send them to S3, and that seems very trivial, very, very nondescript. But in the world of internal to Amazon, that's a comp- that's a competition. Like there's there's fighting, there's machinations that happen around. You know, how do you you know how does EBS going to use S3 effectively, and do they even want to use that, or do they want to go build their own backup solution? Does that make sense? And so there's those heavy debates happen, and it's a healthy debate that they have, where at Google there's no choice. If you want data, use Colossus, and it's one big service yeah. team. That's all they deliver to you is Colossus. Um, you have to make that work. Now, the other side of that is that if Colossus crashes, it's going to be a really bad day at Google uh, because they're going to take down all of their services. Where you know we've had situations where you know S3 went down in 2017. Uh, you know, which impacted some EBS operations, but for the most part, if your server was running and and not needing to auto scale, that server kept up and running because it is a separate service. Now that could have taken out seventy percent of the incident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah really. Have. Yeah, a bad code push. So, yeah, yeah, right. It's so much more likely than a chunk of C four. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you are using Cloud Spanner and you have a very large system, uh, you may be aware of this issue, and so this is a new feature for you. Uh, but basically, Cloud Spanner allows you to do online schema updates, and so the database never actually goes down. And if you have an app that's querying data from a large table in Cloud Spanner, and you want to add a secondary index, maybe make your performance work a little better, you apply that, and then Cloud Spanner would basically retroactively backfill the new index across all the data population uh, to reflect the up-to-date view of the data. Of course, if this is massive in petabyte scale or you know, ter- multi-terabyte scale and globally distributed. Uh, that might be a very long operation from a couple minutes to maybe several days or hours, <laughs> depending on what you need to do uh, in your particular data set. And previously, once you submitted this change, you were just at the mercy of Google to get it done for you. And so you didn't know if your queries were actually getting better or worse because you were still waiting to know if your entire data set had been backfilled. Uh, to actually measure the impact of your change. And so now Google has fixed that with a new API that allows you to go check on the status of your backfill operation at any time uh, via the G Cloud command line tool, the REST API, or the RPC API. 
and super important because now if you've got terabytes of data and you're waiting to do a, a software deployment which relies on those new indexes, now you know. It seems like a pretty obvious feature you should have had. <laughs> it's just, you know, like how do you know that the thing I did is actually done? It's an, is it an atomic operation and it's not, uh, then I need to be able to view the, the status of that operation anytime so I can know it's completed safely. Yeah, I mean, the, the other option is, you know, some, some person uh, sits there at the console and types the command and they, they literally have to sit there and wait for the new line to, to appear before yeah. <laughs> they know the process is complete. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a little no downtime system. So, I mean, it, it, it does start taking the new data in with a new yeah. format and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So, it probably doesn't actually slow you down as much as you would think. But there are use cases where it would or, or, and, you know, it may be an issue. So This is just going to cut their network traffic for, you know, users like me that would query that like every 15 seconds to see if <laughs> it's it done yet. I've been really there yet. I've been really there yet. But this is an enterprise feature in SQL yeah. Server, isn't it? Online reindexing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, online reindexing is not typically changing the. I mean, you can add an index at any time. It's not a big deal. Well, I mean, if a big table, it does take some time, and it could be blocking. Yeah. But uh, reindexing is just you know basically reconstructing that whole index so your table scans perform better, and that's a slightly different operation than you know backfilling. I think. Well, yeah, I've seen plenty of blocking operations yeah. for, oh, yeah. for adding indexes. <laughs> many, many an outage I have been involved with. Where it's, oh, we're just adding an index. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Uh, who pressed that button? Yeah. <laughs> who, who pressed that button? Well, the performance is really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Really. I don't know, but it's not here anymore. <laughs> it was me. I'm not admitting it. Indeed. Well, uh, there is a new uh, Google Cloud region to talk about today. So Google apparently opened an office in Poland about 15 years ago. Uh, and last year, they announced that a strategic partnership with Poland's domestic cloud provider to bring the power of Google Cloud to support the rapid growth, entrepreneurial spirit, of, and the passion for innovation to Polish businesses. Uh, and so now, as they're looking forward to a post-COVID economic recovery, enterprises and public organizations of all sizes are able to take advantage of new cloud technologies on the new Warsaw Google Cloud region, uh, which is now open for business. Uh, and I have a quote here from Booksy. Uh, Paul Subkowicki, uh, I butchered that, I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> He's a CTO at Booksy. Uh, we double in size every year, and our previous infrastructure providers couldn't keep up. It became really hard to maintain hundreds of dedicated servers. As our stack grew, we decided to deploy our services to Google Cloud as the most effective and most an efficient way to support our business model. Uh, and this Warsaw joins the existing 24 Google Cloud regions and is connected to their high-performance network globally. So there you go. This is just going to be more and more common because um, it is hard to operate at scale. And, you know, once you get to a certain economy of scale, you know, Google's going to have an easier time doing it than a small provider. So it's, you know, it's, it will, I think we'll start to see this more and more as expanding in through Europe, especially. Yeah. I mean, there's so much data sovereignty issues in Europe that, you know, the more regions you can actually have in Europe, I think the better off you are uh, to kind of get through some of those issues. Um, but you know, it, it's always nice to see new data centers. And this one's kind of the first one I think in Eastern Europe, uh, for at least from the Google side. Maybe Asia has one as well. Uh, but you know, it's nice to see Central and Eastern Europe getting some more options than just Germany, which has its own data privacy issues and laws that they yep. may not want to deal with in Poland. Yeah, I wonder what the smallest economically feasible availability zone would be as far as like total number of cores or instances. I'm, I'm sure it, it's measured in floors of data center <laughs> you know, hundreds, Tens of thousands. hundreds of thousands of square feet of data center capacity uh you know, I, that's pretty big but yeah. yeah i mean i wonder yeah i wonder if they could do smaller more effect you know just better economically affected effective 
since they're all managed remotely anyway. I'm so convinced like oracles are just racks that they put in people's garages. So. Just stacks of pizza boxes just directly on the floor in someone's closet. Just pops in phone closets. It's like if you don't if you don't pay the license fee, we're, we're going to require that you run a, a data center from your a blade in your <laughs> your office someplace. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I wonder. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the capacity planning models for for that and how they decide to go into a region and what the economic impact of the region is. I'm sure there's it's very complicated. I'm sure someday someone will share that with us, and I'd be fascinated to learn. Step, step one, hire <laughs> well, the That's always the truth of anything you want to do in business. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to Azure. Uh, Azure is giving us the general availability of user data, user-data which for those of you in other clouds know what that is already, uh, which enables you to insert your own metadata into a Microsoft Azure virtual machine at provisioning time and to be able to retrieve it using the Azure Instance Metadata Service. The newly released user data offers similar functionality as custom data, but unlike custom data, after the VM is provisioned, user data is available inside the virtual machine, and user data is persistent during the lifetime of the virtual machine instance, which, you know, when I read this, I was like, wait, we, they have this, and that's what custom data was. So the custom data is only mm-hmm. available to a server for the first, like, you know, period of time when it first boots up at what they call the provisioning phase. And then after that, it's no longer available to a server. Um, so this is more traditional user data like we see on Amazon and Google uh, and others uh, that allows you to have this available at all times to the system. So I assume there's some interesting use cases that required Azure to actually build this out uh, from a long-term perspective, which, you know, because I think custom data covers 90% of the use cases that you would have for user data. Well, I don't know. Uh, like I can think of a lot of use cases for like configuration management where I would need to query this host and, you know, like you can do it through API calls, but as we know with thousands of servers while calling an API, you can get very, you know, you can hit service limits, you can get all kinds of stuff, but, and that's what the metadata, you know, sort of endpoints provide is the ability to do that without a thundering herd problem. And so, you know, you can design, you can define your role, you can define access models, you can do all kinds of things. And it can be dynamic, more importantly. Yeah. And I, I, I wish this was a Windows feature in general, which could extend back to our data centers and we could use with VMware. I mean, VMware has the concept of tags, but then you need credentials on the machines to talk back to uh, vCenter. And it's just, it's, just, it's just clunky to manage, but having a built-in metadata endpoint, awesome. Yeah. Well, that's funny how you, you say that, you know, I wish it was built-in because it's, this is probably the third <laughs> or fourth. Uh, Azure feature set that I've been looking for in general Windows ecosystems, and it's just part of their Azure offering. And it's you can see how heavy the development is into that that cloud offering, not just you know the the elements within that cloud. So, yeah, you think that the VMware agent that runs on every single uh, VMware host, you know, and VMware guests, but it would have some API that you could kind of do this thing with. But you know, mm-hmm. I'm not. And someone can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I'm not familiar with them having anything like that where you could, you know, query something like this and, and get it out of the local state metadata kind of thing. I, you know, it's kind of surprised me considering how valuable it's been on AWS and Azure and others to have that kind of capability that it hasn't made its way into more VMware infrastructure. So it would be the natural place you would put it, um, you know, and that way you have it. Or even a metadata type service that becomes part of Windows or becomes part of Linux that you could just turn on and query certain parameters from. It would be super handy. This is, I mean, it's a maturity thing with with automation, because um, you think you think about VMware and a lot of the practices for managing that are from the outside in, right? So you don't need to query from within the host to make decisions. You have a giant console, and they spend a lot of R and D on that console. But as you grow um, and as you get to a certain point, you don't want to have everything be an effect of a direct action. And so these metadata services are reversing it so that the decision can be made at the endpoint and call back. 
mean, you're kind of getting a little bit of, I guess, a console and things like that with you know configuration management, where I'm basically publishing my configuration to the central service, and I can query that. So, I mean, I guess that's how we've kind of solved it in the data center side. But again, I, I, I can see the value of having just as a metadata service would be awesome. But yeah, I hear you. Why it's not there? It makes sense. I think one of my biggest use cases for something like the metadata service, though, is 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 the identity that it provides. I mean, it it, it can sign. A, a request which can prove that this request came from this particular instance in this region, in this data center, or in this cloud, and and giving a giving a machine a, a unique identity which is verifiable is is really valuable. Yeah, I mean, this is when we walk, we walk into zero trust territory. So you know, all the vendors are are gonna yeah. get us what we want. It just you know, there's it's just interesting how it didn't show up sooner. Yeah, it's you know like you know mutual TLS offers that sort of functionality, but that's clunky and hard to manage. And so something like this is gets you a lot of the same benefits. Maybe not all the security of mutual TLS, but um, and it's just so easy. It's built in, and that's it's great. It's a huge advantage when you have this option. Well, if you're using AKS, uh, you can now get encryption at the host support available to you now. Generally available. Uh, Encryption is now supported for the temp disks with platform managed keys, as well as the cache of OS and data disks encrypted either with the platform managed keys or the customer managed keys, depending on the decryption type set on those disks. Uh, again, you know, you might be asking, why would you cover this, Justin? Well, there wasn't a lot of Azure stories, and we skipped them completely last week, and so I'm trying my best. So I apologize for the breadth and depth of these two articles, uh, but you know, someone out there cares, and I wanted to make sure that person got what they needed. Anybody who's doing compliance on that, this this just simplifies things. You don't have to explain anything. It's just, yep, it's all encrypted. Mm -hmm. Don't ask me anything else. Yeah, someone can now use this service because they released this feature where they couldn't use it yesterday. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Microsoft apparently wasn't happy that GCP Poland opened, and so they felt they had to announce the data center. Uh, no, no, they're just, they're just announcing it. They're not opening it, so it's a little different. Uh, but that's a new data center region coming to Malaysia uh, in 2023, which is really cool in two years from now, in 2023, when I'll actually care that this is happening. So uh, Microsoft announcing a new data center in Malaysia, uh, so you can have that available to you sometime in 2023. So before then, you know, you got to put your data in Singapore or somewhere else and then migrate it in 2023. So that's also a, a something to look forward to. It's like a tease. Like, I know I could eventually use it, but I have to I have to do it the bad, unfortunate way, and then I have to do a data migration in two years. So, fantastic. And didn't they already make this announcement? Didn't they, like, they announced a giant expansion to the Malaysia region, and they were going to, you know, open... That was Indonesia, wasn't it? <laughs> you said it in that tone where you, you, you seem to know. Well, like, they may have changed their mind anyway, because when I hit that link to look at the story, it's I get an error, I get an error <laughs> page, page not found, so maybe... <laughs> Maybe they're not, nice. not going to announce it. All I know is I'm uh, I'm noting this for my uh, my 2022 predictions. <laughs> nice. <laughs> December of 2022. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna have to start predicting five years in no. advance if we're gonna <laughs> keep doing this. This is good. This is gonna be rough. I fixed the link in the show notes so you have the proper link. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Well, that is it for new news this week. Uh, I did not I did not go look at the Oracle news because. We talked about mobile apps last week. I can't. I can't do it two weeks in a row. So that's it. We'll go to the lightning round, Peter. Lightning round. Let's start with Amazon Pinpoint, which is now FedRAMP High compliant. I'm glad the government was able to pinpoint what this service does. <laughs> you can now use macros and transforms 
in CloudFormation templates to create AWS CloudFormation stack sets. Or you could simplify your life and adopt Terraform 0.15. Sweet God, I can't imagine like trying to debug this. Configure <laughs> a macro that uses Terraform or but, it uses like, CloudFormation inputs to generate a stack set? No, thank you. Like, but like, like, it's like they forgot they have CDK already. <laughs> it's like, it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, coming next week, mail merges. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon Macy adds CloudWatch logging for job status and health monitoring of sensitive data discovery jobs. So now you can prove to your security that yes, Macy is working, and we, yes, we don't have any PII job data. Clearly, now they need to offer you know budget support in the billing dashboard. Amazon Textract achieves FedRAMP compliance as well. Clearly showing that the IRS is using Amazon Web Services for your future tax audit needs. Ooh, heck. <laughs> Yeah, anything that stops me from having to fill in manually entry, you know, into data boxes, I'm, I'm okay. okay. <laughs> Stract away. Now, visualize and report patch compliance using AWS Systems Manager, Patch Manager. Because executives can only take care of patching with a visualization. Yeah. I wonder what a red-green colorblind executive would do with themselves. Mm. Like, how do you tell mm. if it's good or bad? It's just gray. Everything's gray. That's why it's blue-green. That's why they're blue-green, not red-green. <laughs> and we had a very short little list there. But the mail merge takes the cake. Oh, nice. Yes. 99% sure he used that mail merge joke before. <laughs> Doesn't matter. As long as I don't remember it. And then, and then you call it a callback, and it's it's comedy strategy. So yeah, it works out. You should use it. You should keep using it to see how many times you can win before I start realizing that you've said that before. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, we have uh, things coming up. Uh, apparently, Amazon, uh, you know, Summit was something that Google got jealous of. So now Google is announcing their own Summit series. So now we'll have the Amazon and the Google's com- competing Summit series all available to you. Uh, so they've announced two summits already. First is the Data Cloud Summit, which will be on May 26th, 2021. And then the Financial Services Summit will be on May 27th, 2021, uh, where you can hear all about PayPal, Global Payments, HSBC, Credit Suisse, and other amazing banking technology companies that you will go right to sleep with. So fantastic <laughs> for all of you who need to do the banking fintech thing. That's available for you. Uh, they do say this blog post will be updated frequently which is, of course, a great way for me to never talk about it again because it will not cross my RSS feed. Uh, But maybe I'll click on it again to let you know if there's any other future summits sometime later in the month. Uh, And then, of course, we did mention last week the AWS container activities coming up at the beginning of May for KubeCon for EKS and DockerCon May 26th for ECS, as well as I do want to remind you, the summits are coming up for AWS. Uh, They start on May 12th. Uh, and they go through the month of May all across the globe. And so do check those things out as well. There you go. That is it for this week. Oh, uh, oh sorry. One last plug. I, I think I have one more time I can mention the Azure Storage Day. Last week, I, I gave you five reasons to join. Today, I'll give you five reasons not to. Just use something other than Azure. <laughs> yeah. That's the best way to go. So That's one. Uh, you have four yeah, I can't more. Come up with any more. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Oh, I, I mean, I can use user data to access that data storage, right? So yeah, I guess that's a good thing. Named after an old horror movie. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I can't hold more. It's, it's tough. <laughs> it's very, very tough. Uh, but, you know, maybe the ultra version will, will help us out with that in the future. So. <laughs> 
And that is it uh, for things coming up. But do check those things out. Uh, lots of great activities coming very soon. And do you know, sign up and get involved in the cloud community as a whole. And if you'd like to also join the CloudPod cloud community, our Slack channel is waiting for you to join. Uh, and we are there to answer all of your cloud questions. Well, at least we'll try to. Or someone else will who is smarter than us. Oh, we'll smarter people. They just won't be yeah. the right answers. Well, that's uh, RM minus RM. Don't don't follow that advice, uh, especially on your Mac. It's my answer to everything. Yeah, it'll, it'll end poorly. All right. Well, that's another fantastic week here in the cloud. Have a great week, guys. Bye, everybody. Later. See you later. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.